This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of, the, of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, so that he may be able to give instruction in the sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced, since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply, that they may be sound in faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure, but to the, the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure, but both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. Well, it's my privilege to be teaching from Titus 1 this morning, um, and as Pastor Rod mentioned, I'll be sharing my time with JD, so I'll try my best to stay within um, my portion of the time, because I know he's waiting patiently. Um, our passage today might sound a little familiar to many of us who have been attending Gateway regularly since at least last fall. Um, if you recall, Pastor Rod led us through a series on shepherding the flock in which we looked at God's design for the church and how God has designed leadership for, for his church. Uh, several weeks ago, I attended a management training at, at work. And in the training session, we, were to, we used a tool to explore our different management styles. So after going through a series of 50 or so questions, um, we had to respond to evaluating statements like, I tend to avoid conflict, or I work well under pressure, and then we're supposed to agree or disagree. And then it gives you back a report. And you know, I was actually pretty surprised at how well it read me, given that it was just a computer program, um, though it's not 100%. But I just wanted to share a little bit from, from that report. And this is how it started out. It said, John, you show steadiness and consistency, and you tend to be a conscientious and reliable manager. Overall, you probably want to be known as someone people can count on. So I said a lot of nice things to start out with before I got into the, the critical parts. So. <laughs> Uh, this, this, these are a couple of them. However, while you tend to produce consistent results, you may occasionally focus on specifics at the expense of the big picture. Another one was, your commitment to proven, time-tested methods often causes you to resist new and innovative ideas. While your decisions are probably well thought out, others may feel that your caution could occasionally get in the way of progress. And then finally, this is one that I thought was kind of funny. 
While your unassuming nature probably makes you seem approachable, those who are more outgoing or forceful may struggle to read your more subtle communication style. Well, I hope my subtle communication style doesn't get in the way of what I want to communicate this morning. But the point of my sharing this story is that we all like to hear what we're good at, uh, maybe not so much what we're not good at. Um, and then we look at our, over our colleagues' shoulders and see you know, what kind of results they got. Um, like this is some sort of fortune-telling game. But you know, when it comes down to matters of style and preference, we tend to look at what's already inside of ourselves. And then we validate or try to find value in our own styles and habits. And sure, there may, there may be a place for that in the workplace where we're all working with different personalities and different types of people. But when it comes to leadership in God's church, we dare not ask ourselves a panel of 50 questions and validate ourselves based on our existing habits. God actually gives us a very clear picture of what the character of a Christian leader looks like, or at least one who aspires to the position of leadership. So the question, what does a church leader or an elder look like, will be front and center in our text today. So last week, uh, one of our elders, Matt, he spoke on uh, Paul's greeting to Titus, uh, the first four verses of our book. Uh, but we saw how, much it was, how it was so much more than just a simple hello. Uh, essentially, Paul shows his love and his concern for Titus and the church in Crete and reveals the purpose of his writing in these first four verses. In verse 1, um, if you have your Bibles open to Titus 1, verse 1, Paul writes, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness. So in this, Paul draws a direct connection between the knowledge of the truth and godly living. And the, go and the gospel truth that we can fall on is that God has revealed his grace to us through his son, Jesus Christ. We also introduce the idea of grace-based godliness in the life of the church as the theme of the book of Titus. And we'll see that theme developing throughout our book, hopefully in our time today and as we continue in this series. We also see a transferring of leadership uh, from Paul to Titus, and, eventually, and eventually Paul is now charging Titus to pass on this mantle of, of leadership to faithful men, which he describes um, in the verses that we'll be looking at together. So let's take a look at verse 5 in our text, verse 5. It says, This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. So we have our first point here, Paul's charge to Titus. Paul's charge to Titus. So Paul's first word to Titus immediately following the greeting in verses 1 through 4 is a direct charge to Titus to put, to put what remained into order. So I use email a lot at work, and I can often tell someone's priorities by the way that they order their emails. So for example, it'll go like, hi, John, hope you had a great weekend. Did you get a chance to look at the drawings I sent you? And so by the way that they write that, I know they're not, they're not really interested in my weekend. They want to know if I got to their drawings, right? <laughs> so verse 5 tells us at least two things. First, that Paul had been with Titus in the establishment of the church on Crete. And second, that there was a high-priority work left to be completed. And Paul, Paul purposely left things in an incomplete state so that Titus could go about the work of building the church on Crete. 
we learn from this verse that Paul trusted Titus, um, his young apprentice, and the establishment of elders was necessary to set order in the church. Um, now, in order to get a sense of the challenge that, w- that Titus was facing here, a little background might be helpful. Um, so Crete was and is a large island in the Mediterranean, and the people of Crete apparently had a very strong national character. And, you know, we, we often hear of stereotypes that characterize people of certain countries or regions, even today, whether they're accurate or not. And I'm not going to get into any examples here. I think you can all know what I'm talking about. But jumping down to verse uh, 12 in, in chapter 1, we get an idea of how the people of Crete were widely known as. And it says, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. So not a very positive reputation, right? Um, but, you know, this was the context that Titus um, was to establish elders. And even a, reason, even a reason for Titus to be very diligent about his work. So we also note that this is not a charge that was unique uh, to Titus in the context of Crete, but it was also a charge that Paul gave to Timothy for the church of Ephesus as well. And in his first letter to Timothy, Paul gives him instruction on how to qualify elders, and we'll be looking at that passage um, in a moment. And we know that Timothy was successful in appointing these elders because when we look at um, an account in Acts chapter 20, and we don't have to turn there, but we see Paul bidding a very heartfelt farewell to the Ephesian elders as he plans for his return to Jerusalem where he knows he's going to face certain danger. Um, but even in, under these dire circumstances, Paul is very direct with his message for the elders to be vigilant for the church. This is what it says in Acts chapter 20, 28. He says, Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God which he obtained with his own blood. So outside the immediate context we have here in Crete, there is a leadership model that applies to all New Testament churches, including Gateway. And what Paul is prescribing for the Cretan church is is applicable to our church today. The design is for godly men, referred to as the elder or the the overseer in Scripture, to hold these positions of leadership within the church. And these men are to meet specific character qualifications, as we'll see in a minute, and to hold fast to sound doctrine. So this takes us to our second point, the characteristics of a qualified elder. And now let's look at verses 6 through 8. Verse 6, it says, If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife, and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination, for an overseer as God's steward must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. So if you were here for our series on leadership um, this past fall, um, this section in particular might look familiar. We studied the qualifying characteristics of an elder from a different passage um, in 1 Timothy chapter 3. So the 1 Timothy passage in a way parallels Titus chapter 1 verses 6 through 8, and it helps shed some light on some of the language that we, that we just read. So 
Um, why don't we all turn to that passage in 1 Timothy chapter 3, just a few pages uh, back. And we'll read verses 1 through 7 together. Starting in verse 1. It says, The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may be become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders, so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. So you, you can keep your finger here, since we'll go, be going back to First uh, Timothy chapter 3. But let's flip back to Titus chapter 1 for now. So first, we note that there's a requirement for the elder or a prospective elder to be above reproach or blameless as it's rendered in some translations. And you'll notice that Paul uses this description twice in Titus, once in verse 6 and again in verse 7, uh, giving us a hint that this is a, a, a general overarching type of requirement and not refer referring to a specific area like uh, the other requirements do. Now, are elders blameless? I think um, we just have to ask the question, are they human? To understand that no elder is blameless, no human is blameless. This description of above reproach or blameless is not a standard of moral perfection. Since then, since then what would we have? We would have leaderless churches, right? The idea is that the elder is a man whose life could not be called into account or whose life is worthy of imitation. So Pastor Rod gave us this test uh, when we're considering this general requirement. Is there anything about this man for which someone could bring an accusation and support it? So that's a helpful way to think about that. Let's go to verse 6. And verse 6 gets into some characteristics that describe an elder's family life. So the first one is husband of one wife or a one-woman man you know, committed to his wife. And then it speaks about his children. Children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination, meaning his children are under control. Now, the first Timothy chapter 3 passage is helpful in understanding and shedding light on um, this requirement here. So let's go to verse, uh, 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 4. And I'll read that. He says, He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. Now, I can guarantee you that there's no elder out there who would not desire saving faith for his children. And I've been a father for not even 10 months now, and I'm already seeing how that's my number one greatest desire and prayer for, for Ian. But we know that salvation is from the Lord, and parents are ultimately called to be faithful. The elder must be faithful in leading, instructing, and praying for his family in a manner that is honoring to God and keeping his children under firm, godly control. Let's go to the next verse in um, 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 5. And this shows us a connection between the elder's qualifications in family life and ministry life. 
So let's look at verse 5. It says, For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? So in this we see that a man is qualified first in his home ministry before being qualified for leadership over an extended family, so to speak, the church. And this is important because serving in church leadership shouldn't come at the expense of a God-honoring family life where God has called all husbands and fathers to take primary leadership. Let's go to verse 7 in Titus. So verse 7 touches on now his, his personal character. And you'll notice that Paul uses a pattern um, in verses 7 and 8 where he first talks about what the elder ought not to be and then what he should be. And we're, going to, we're not going to go into much depth into any one of these specific characteristics, but uh, we'll, we just want to identify them to get a big picture understanding of what the qualified elder looks like. So starting in the second half of verse 7, the list starts off with not arrogant. And the idea of arrogance is that it's a man who's self-promoting, someone who's prideful. And from there, you can kind of understand how these other uh, negative characteristics flow out of that. So he's not quick-tempered, a drunkard, a violent, uh, violent or greedy for gain. Now, verse 8 begins with the word but, and, you know, but usually indicates that there's a contrast. So what we're going to see in verse 8 are the, the positive characteristics of an elder, what he ought to be. And this list includes hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. So the negative to positive pattern that Paul uses lends itself to sort of a double emphasis on what the full picture of an elder is, the positive characteristics in direct contrast to the negative. So, for example, the elder must not be violent and he must be self-controlled. You know, not that there could be a man who is both violent and self-controlled, but the combination of this language helps to paint a 360-degree picture of the qualified elder. So my son, Ian, is going on about 10 months now. And for all your parents out there, you might remember having to shop for a car seat at some point. And it's a major investment since there's products out there that will last you everywhere from 10 months to 10 years old. So, so right around six months, Tia and I, decided that we needed to invest in a bigger car seat for our growing boy, hopefully something that would last him um, for, for a good number of years. So we naturally did some research. We read reviews on Amazon. We asked around, and we shopped for deals, and we eventually came up with a set of criteria that we wanted for our car seat. I wanted something that was light and not heavy, and Tia wanted something that was safe and would not crumble in an accident. And we I guess we could have simply said that we wanted something light and safe, but it didn't convey the same weight of meaning for me. When I say I'm, I want something not heavy, I picture myself lugging a 25-pound piece of steel without a handle through an airport, and that's, not, that's something I don't want. And when Tia says she doesn't want something that will crumble in an accident, she means that in the worst possible accident, at least Ian would be okay. So there's a sharpness to the picture of an elder when you say that he's self-controlled and not a drunkard because you have this image of perhaps someone that was a drunkard in the past and you look at that and you think that this is not what an elder should be or that he's a lover of good and he's not arrogant or that he's hospitable and not greedy for gain. And in this passage, even though we're dealing with qualifications for eldership, many of these coincide with 
a common uh, passage that we're all familiar with, the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians chapter 5, verse 22. And those fruits, those fruit of the Spirit include love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And in comparing, in comparing that list with the list that we just went over in Titus, we see that the fruit of the Spirit is all over the life of the elder, indicating that he's a man who's profoundly affected by the work of the Holy Spirit in their lives. Let's move on to verse 9 in Titus 1. In verse 9, we come to a, a unique requirement for the elder, which is not exactly a character trait like those we just looked at, but it's a very firm commitment to God's word. In other words, it's not enough for an elder to be a morally superior individual. Let's read verse 9 together. It says, He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. So our third point is the commitment to God's word. The elder has a duty toward the word of God. In 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 2, it simply describes the requirement as able to teach, while the Titus passage that we're studying today is much more specific. Let's notice how verse 9 reads, he must hold firm to the trustworthy, trustworthy word is taught, so that. And so, so that indicates that there's a purpose. The elder must hold firm to God's word for the purpose of giving instruction and rebuking those who contradict it. Now, it'll become a little bit clearer in the following passage that we'll also look at today, what it means to rebuke those who contradict it in the context of Crete. Um, but I'll leave that to J.D. Also notice what our passage says about the word of God itself. It says it's trustworthy, meaning that there's no room for questioning its legitimacy or its efficacy as it relates to life and to living. 2 Timothy 3.16 might be a verse that we're all, many are familiar with. It says, All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. The elder must be able to teach sound doctrine. And sound doctrine is literally healthy teaching that flows from the word. The elder knows that scripture is sufficient for his word, for his work in shepherding the flock, and there's no need to appeal to human theories or strategies or wisdom. Also, I want us to notice that there is an important connection in verse 9 to the overall theme of the book of Titus. If you recall, the theme of Titus um, there's an emphasis on godly living that's built on sound doctrine. So it's important for us to take note that the elders are the people in the church that are responsible for the teaching and the defense of sound doctrine from which flows godly living. So in the context of the whole book, doctrine is not, just a sim not simply an academic exercise, but it has real implications on church life. And also as leaders, elders need to lead the church guided by the word of God. Listen to what uh, Al Mohler says about pastors and the responsibility toward God's word. So, quote, Every pastor is called to be a theologian. This may come as a surprise to some pastors who see theology as an academic discipline taken during, during seminary rather than as an ongoing and central part of the pastoral calling. Nevertheless, 
The health of the church depends upon its pastors functioning as faithful theologians, teaching, preaching, defending, and applying the great doctrines of the faith. So to summarize, what does a qualified leader look like in light of verses 6 through 9? Well, he's a man who's above reproach. He's faithful in managing his family. He exhibits the fruits of the Spirit. And as we just saw, he has an appetite for knowing, applying, and proclaiming God's word in the context of the church. Paul exhorts Timothy in 1 Timothy 4.16. He says, Keep a close watch on yourself and on your teaching. Or in the NIV it says, Watch your life and doctrine closely. So life and doctrine. We have Paul here restating the importance of godly living and sound teaching to Timothy, which would also pertain here to his young apprentice, Titus. So, I hope our coverage of this passage today didn't come across as redundant since we're pretty fresh off of this very extensive um, eldership process. But, you know, now that we're on the other side of that process, I thought it might actually be a very appropriate and good time for us to revisit the biblical basis for church leadership and the high calling of our elders. And I don't know about you, but this was really the first time that I was part of a church where I had the privilege of witnessing the road to eldership. I personally never quite understood the incredible weight that these men carry as elders. And at the same time, I've never desired so much to support them in their role and for myself to emulate um, the biblical standard myself. And as I was preparing for this message, I wrestled with what the passage was saying to me. And honestly, it took a toll on me physically, emotionally, and re relationally. I just felt so inadequate uh, to be teaching the church, much less on the portrait of what a godly man looks like. Um, but, you know, God must have had this set up purposely for me because I needed to remind myself over and over again that the word of God would stand for itself and that grace freely received is the basis for change in any man. So, uh, a few thoughts to, just to, to conclude our time. First, <clears throat> is that godly leadership is necessary to foster grace-based godliness in the church. And I, I hope, hopefully I conveyed that uh, through the message. The establishment of elders is the church leadership model that Paul prescribes uh, here in Titus, in Timothy, and how he opens the book um, to, his, uh, to Titus. So elders must meet a, a very high standard, as we saw. He, he, ha he must be a man of character and a man of commitment. But God doesn't require without enabling. And God's high standard of, of leaders is achieved through none other than his abundant grace for leaders. And this is important because godly leadership is the beginning of godliness in the church. The elder's character is to be shaped by sound doctrine, serving as an example to the church, and the elder's teaching is to be a faithful representation of God's word, serving as instruction to the church. And so this is what guarding the, the deposit, um, that's what it means when Paul writes to Timothy. Uh, secondly, there's an application for us as a church. We as a church need to support our elders, and I hope it's clear why we, we need to do that. They need, we need to support them so that they can maintain integrity and devote themselves to the teaching and protection of sound doctrine and even rebuke when it's necessary. A few months ago, we had three prospective elders, and now we have established elders who have been called 
vetted, and affirmed according to, to the biblical model. But qualification is not just a one-time thing. They need to be qualified day after day, qualified and then requalified. And that's a really, that's a really high bar. And today's passage doesn't apply to a hypothetical person. They apply to Ed, Albert, Matt, Pastor Rod, as the elders of Gateway. And guess what? They aren't perfect, and I'm guessing that they wrestle with these characteristics each in their own individual way. Our elders are, are human who struggle with their own flesh just like you and me, and they're in need of God's grace just as much, or they might even say more, than you or me. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. Titus 2.11. So we need to encourage and pray for our elders' continued qualification, and as we saw today, to guard the soundness of their teaching and leadership. Finally, in case you are, you are tuning out because this is talking about elders, there's an application for us all here too. And though we're not all called to the office of eldership, what we are all, all called to is to pursue godliness in our lives. The character of an elder shouldn't sound too foreign to many of us because the characteristics of the elder are the same characteristics that we find of a godly person. Holy, self-controlled, disciplined, a lover of good. We can ask ourselves then, how are we doing in our own spheres of leadership or influence over our homes and our children or our work, for example? We'll get into more of this trickling down of godliness in chapter 2 of Titus as it applies to different groups within the church in a future message. But to close, um, I'd like us to turn to the book of Romans, uh, chapter 6, and we'll be looking at uh, verses 17 and 18, Romans chapter 6. And this is a great passage, not only telling us about what we're saved from, but what we are saved unto. So Romans chapter 6, verse 17. It says, But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed, and having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. Now, if you're a believer with us here today, you're a slave of righteousness. A true grasp of grace produces godliness in the life of a believer. It's true for leaders, and it's true for you and me. It's true for individuals, and it's true for the life of the church. So we praise God for his enabling grace. Uh, will you pray with me? Father, we thank you for your word this morning as you have given us the picture of what it means to, to fall on you, um, to be a godly leader. And Lord, as you have also showed us um, that we are also dependent on you, uh, to grow in our godliness as individuals and with our, within our home and family lives. We pray, God, that you would help us, Lord, as a church to support and to pray for our elders and, God, to uh, really pursue righteousness as you allow us. We pray all these in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you, Johnny. sure appreciate uh you sharing the word this morning, and just as he and uh, JD switched the microphones, let me just just reiterate um, a couple of things. Um, he mentioned just this whole 
this whole trickle down. Uh, there's a reason why Titus starts out with the leadership. And the leadership aren't just supposed to be the elite, but they are called to a responsibility. And that responsibility then trickles down. And we will see that unfolded in chapter 2, as he mentioned. Um, but it's really important that we don't just see this passage as this is about elders. Because these characteristics, these qualities are things that we should be um, pursuing, exercising in our lives. And so I just really appreciate the, the challenge that he gave us this morning on that. Well, the next uh, young man is J.D., and uh, J.D. is one of our, uh, he is our intern right now working with the young people. So, J.D., why don't you come and minister the word to us again? Thank you, Johnny, for preaching that sermon. Sorry, this is really high. Not that tall. Uh, helps me to see better. But uh, thank you for allowing me to speak today. Uh, why don't we just open up in a word of prayer before I begin here, uh, just to get ourselves back in the zone, I guess. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you just for this time you have given us. We thank you for your word that's been preached by Johnny, Lord. We just ask you now that you will, again, just remove any distractions from our hearts and from our minds, Lord, as we get into your word. We thank you again just for this time, Lord. It is a privilege to preach your word up here. And I just pray, Lord, that whatever I say and do will be glorifying to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, so a couple months after Thay and I got married, uh, we decided it was actually the right time for us to, to move churches. Uh, we grew up in a church in Vallejo, uh, but we moved to the San Ramon Valley. So uh, it was a little bit far, so, you know, after just long prayer and, and discernment, we said, okay, you know, maybe it's time for us to, to look for a new church in the San Ramon Valley. Um, we were recommended uh, some churches. We also uh, discussed uh, with some other people in the area what churches to attend. And uh, so we were eager to set foot in these new churches, right? So I took my bride, and we went to these churches. And about four or five churches later, um, what was so supposed to be exciting sort of became, we were discouraged. Um, our view of the American church, specifically in the valley, was of great concern. Uh, the church was no longer a church. There were Bibles present, but the, but the word of God wasn't, wasn't even preached. Uh, worship and drama took precedence over the sermon, and strange teachings were coming out of the mouths of so-called ministers of the word. Let me give you an example. So we went to this one church, um, which doesn't even exist anymore, and um, they love worship, and we knew that from the get-go. So they love worship, and I love worship. I can't sing, but I love worship, um, and I love to sing, but about the 12th song later, yeah, the 12th song later, we were just so tired, and I, I turned to Thea, and I was like, I'm, I'm tired. I want to sit down, and... <laughs> You know, I was beat. I was redrained. I felt like I was like I feel like I just ran a marathon. I mean, singing twelve songs, and and that was just one of the churches. And after that, the the, the pastor got up and you know he gave this talk and just this just weird, strange. He was talking about visions and, and everything else, but um, 
Again, it, it, was, it was discouraging. Thay and I at times wept. He said, man, how can people just take the bride of Christ and just and turn it around and, and have it become this entertainment center? Nevertheless, Scripture tells us that these kinds of things would happen. Uh, we're going to go through sort of a Bible drill. So I'm going to go through all these passages. I'm going to do my best to slow down, but I'm going to read them out to you. And we're just, I'm going to echo the words of, and the warnings of Jesus, Paul, Peter, John, and Jude. So if you turn with me to Matthew 7. And this is Jesus, Matthew 7, starting with verse 15. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. Wolves. And you turn a couple books over to Mark chapter 13. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray. If possible, the elect, be on guard. I have told you all these things beforehand. Then we see Paul's, word, Paul's words in Acts. Acts chapter 20, verses 29 to 30. I know I'm kind of rushing here, so again, Bible drill. Um, again, Acts chapter 20, verses 29 to 30. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Then we go to 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 2 to 4. Again, 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 2 to 4. For I feel divine jealousy for you, since I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin in Christ. But I am afraid that as a, as a serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a, from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. For if someone comes and proclaims another Jesus than the one we proclaim, or if you receive a different spirit from the one you received, or if you accept a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put, it, you put up with it readily enough. And then turn your Bibles to 2 Timothy Chapter 3, 2 Timothy chapter 3, starting with verse 1, and we'll go to 7 here. <clears throat> but understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty, for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving, treacherous, reckless, swollen, and conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. Avoid such people, for among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women, burdened with sins and led astray by various passions, always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. Now we have Peter in Second Peter chapter 2. You guys okay? Good. Second Peter, chapter 2, verses 1 to 3. But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their sensuality, and because of them the way of the truth will be blasphemed. And in their greed they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, 
and their destruction is not asleep. Almost done. We have John. Turn to 1 John chapter 4. 1 John chapter 4, verses 1 to 3. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether you are from God. And for many false prophets have gone into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. Last, turn your um, Bibles to Jude. And most recently, Paul, um, Pastor Rod took us through Jude, and we were challenged to contend for the faith. Again, the warning is clear. Verse 3, Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once and for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. In verses 17, which is um, in, still in Jude, But you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, in the last time there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people, devoid of the Spirit. So I'm going to ask you to turn your Bibles back to Titus, which is our passage today. Titus 1. And as Johnny explained, uh, Paul has identified the need and the qualifications of elders in verses 5 to 9. And we see it personally connected with verses 10 through 16. The emphasis is summed up in verse 9. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. Now, Paul indicates why these qualifications are necessary with the word for, as we see in verse 10. See, qualified elders need to exhort and refute. And here's the reason why, which is stated in my first point. Here's the problem that Paul states. For many... For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. Let's not look past this, but there are many. Not one, not only a few, but many. We are reminded in the beginning of the New Testament, as as we all just read, that the, the warnings are clear of false teachers. This is not to be taken lightly. Then it describes them, insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers. They're rebellious. This is a type of licentiousness. That the, I mean, they're, they're ba- basically rebelling against the apostles' teaching. And they're empty talkers, and they contradict sound doctrine with empty words that deceive people. You know, I have this weird thing, probably no one does it. I, I, I do it. I do probably do it once or twice on a monthly basis. I, I listen to good preaching, and I also listen to bad preaching. Um, you could ask me later how, how you know what bad preaching is, how I know. Maybe I'm preaching. No, I'm not, I'm not preaching bad preaching. Um, but I listen to bad preaching, and I, I just listen to these words, and, and they just throw a verse in there, and, and they just talk. They talk for 20, 30 minutes. It's all just talk. And the verse doesn't even make sense in there. And, and, I, and, I, and I think of this passion, I think these are empty talkers. In addition, Paul adds another element, which is the circumcision party. In other words, these were Jews. These were Jewish Cretans, which they required that the law be kept for salvation and or sanctification. And Paul references the circumcision party elsewhere. Turn your Bibles to Galatians 2. 
Galatians 2. And I'll read starting verse 7. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. And when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, that we should go to the Gentiles and, and they to the circumcised. Verse 12, but before certain men came from James, for before certain men became for James from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. That was Peter. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. Some of us remember, again, that Peter tried to separate himself. He was eating only with the circumcision group because what? He feared them. The Jews were following the, the Mosaic covenant with circumcision and eating certain foods. Friends, the Jews in the early church had this gospel plus message. I didn't coin the term. Maybe some of you have heard uh, the Jesus plus theology. Or Jesus and, meaning what can save you is Christ plus something, whether it's diets, religious knowledges, or practices. You know, I've been teaching young people now for the past 10 plus years. And the most dangerous message that attempts to destroy their walk with Christ is a need for something in addition to Christ. Whether it's cool people, friends, whatever it is, music. However, it's not a problem only with young people. It's a problem for everyone in the church. Sometimes it's plain to see or or to recognize, but it can be subtle as well. We add to Jesus thinking it's okay. Nevertheless, we add something to Jesus. When we add something to Jesus, we subtract from Jesus. And when we surround ourselves around a culture that adds to Jesus, we all become infected by it. It turns into idolatry, which I'll, I'll get into a little bit later. Verse 11, they must be silenced since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. Look, Paul wastes no time. He says, they must be silenced. Literally, that word is muzzled, controlled, and it must be done. I mean, this is Paul as pastor showing his zeal for protecting the church. Why? Because they're upsetting whole families. They're ruining them. They're overturning them, right? They're literally destroying families, and you see Paul Paul's pastoral heart for these households. A false teacher makes it easier to exercise his or her motive when they get a family or individual alone as opposed to a church or Christian school setting. Here's what I mean, okay? A false teacher could come into church and we have elders, we have pastors who would, who would guide, who would help with these false teachers by rebuking them, by silencing them. If they go to your school, whether it's a Christian school or a Bible school, you have professors or teachers that will help you along the way. But if they come into your house, you're alone. Okay? There's a story when they and I were living in San Ramon. We had two ladies that uh, we, were, we were on our way to do something, and, and these two ladies knocked on our door, and uh, you know, they, they were like, hey, I want to share God with you. I'm like, well, you know, we're in a rush. I'm a Christian. I would love to talk to you about God, and, but we got to go. And she's like, no, no, no. I really want to share God. And you're like, look, look, I, I know about God. I mean, you see all these Bibles on my bookshelf. I got to go. And she's like, and then she said something. She's like, don't you want to go to heaven? I was like, I was thinking in my head, I don't want to go to your heaven. Um, but, you know, it's just, but people come into your house, they, they try to creep in, they try, they, they kind of corner you in your house, and, and that's the most dangerous thing. That's why submitting to church and, and being a part of a church is important. 
And then what's their motive behind their ministry? It's money. False teachers love money. They crave money. They talk about money. I mean, you see it on the television, right? I'm sure all of us have seen that. Again, they must be silenced to echo Paul's words. Verse 12 says, One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. Again, Paul uses strong words to describe their character and uses one of their own people to describe who, who these Cretans were. It was a prophet from the 6th century. He's a poet. He was a priest by the name of Epimenides. And their own people didn't even speak highly, of, or he didn't even speak highly of his own people, right? Liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. I mean, these, are, these were Cretans. I mean, these are, don't, if you get in a fight with your wife or whatever, please don't call her a Cretan. I mean, we don't, these are not that, or, or if you have a crying baby at 2 a.m. in the morning, sometimes we're, we're, uh, we're tempted to call him a Cretan. No, I'm not. Um, but if you, if you look at this, there's, there's no morality. I mean, again, it's, it's a life filled with licentiousness, insubordination, meaning lying is as easy as speaking for them. Cretans are wild animals with no self-control or discipline with themselves. To sum it up, as we see in verses 10 to, 10 to 12, we have legalism and lawlessness that characterizes these false teachers. Both are damaging. Both are idols of the heart and mind. You see, in some of these idols that we have, and if I take it down to, our, to sort of this, this church level, these idols, maybe to you they're good things. Maybe it could be family. Maybe it could be your job, which are all good things. But once it becomes an ultimate thing in your life, it becomes an idol. That's sinful. So Paul describes what these false teachers do and who they are. And he echoes again, this testimony is true. He's basically saying, you better believe this testimony is true. So now that we touch upon who these false teachers are and what the problem is, we shift our f- focus on the response given from Paul. Therefore, rebuke them sharply that they, might, that they may be sound in the faith. Rebuke. In addition to silencing the false teachers, the responsibility of of the elders is to rebuke, literally expose them and their teachings, right? So silence and rebuke. But here's here's a statement that kind of surprised me in this whole passage, that they may be sound in the faith, right? Paul's mission and goal was to bring them back to the gospel, right? This is Paul's boldness, but he loves, but again, he has this pastoral heart, and he says, look, that they may be sound in the faith. This statement is redemptive. Okay? He's against them, but he's also for them. I mean, that, that my friends, that's, that's love. Right? I mean, we see this in Paul. And we should always be confronting false teachers in love to help them be liberated from what? What does it say? It says, liberated from not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. Right? These are Jewish fables and the commandments of men. They love the commandments of men. And Paul reemphasizes this. And man-made commands rather than, what, the commandments of God. And he says that, that last word, truth. They knew it once, but not anymore. Thirdly, we, we look at the outcome assumed in this passage. There are two perspectives in verses 15 and 16. There's an internal and there's an external to the pure, all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. 
but both their minds and their consciences are defiled. Let's see Jesus' words once again in Mark, Mark 7, Mark chapter 7, verse 15. Uh, there is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him, but the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And going out of verses 18 to 23. Do, do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him, since it, is, since it enters not his heart but his stomach and is expelled? Thus he declared all foods clean. And he said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within our heart, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these things come from within and they defile a person. You see, purification is a matter of internal rather than external. Nothing outside can corrupt someone who is internally pure. I mean, if you're a believer, nothing outside can corrupt you. But if someone who is already internally impure, it corrupts everything that he or she touches. The problem with false teachers is that they were corrupt on the inside. Therefore, their minds and consciences were impure, which equated to false teaching. Inner impurity produces outer impurity. So what happens? They become hypocrites, as we read in verse 16. This is the external. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. As a result, they claim to what? They, they claim to know and follow God, but what their actions showed otherwise. And what happens with their, with their deeds? It's detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. Paul is righteously relentless in concluding his sharp tone, characterizing the outcome of of false teachers. Belief and behavior go hand in hand. Sound doctrine and good works go together. Our faith should produce good works. Only the gospel can do this. Now I'm going to conclude with some practical ways and priorities that we must pray and ponder upon as a church family. Number one, pray for our elders, submit to their authority. Silence and, silencing and rebuking is a tough task for anyone, but it must be done by our pastors and by our elders of the church. Secondly, pray for the redemption of false teachers that they may see and savor the gospel of Jesus Christ. Correct them so that God may grant them repentance, which leads to eternal life. Finally, reemphasizing the, the theme for Titus, which is, grace-based godliness in the life of the church. See, only the gospel can change a person, and, and, and even a false teacher. And I'm not just saying that. Understanding grace and being reminded of grace is crucial in the Christian life. A grace-saturated life will, always, will keep us from adding or subtracting to the gospel of Jesus Christ. So now, I want, to be, I want us to be reminded of the gospel You know, last week, Matt turned to Isaiah 6. You know what? You don't have to turn there. I'm just going to go over it with you. And, and I just love that passage, right? I mean, you see, you read that Isaiah, is, is, he sees the Lord sitting on the throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe is filled with the temple. I mean, this is, this is the holy God, right? And what happens, and you see the seraphim, they're worshiping holy, holy, holy. And then what happens then, then the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. You see, Isaiah, at that moment, he, he feels the weight of his sin. 
right? And this holy, this perfect, this sovereign God, this loving God, in all his love, in all his grace, he sent his son, Jesus Christ, to what? To die for us sinners, right? The Bible says in Ephesians 2 that we were once dead in our trespasses. We were followers of the prince of this world. We were children of wrath. But this holy God sent his son, why? For Christ to live the life that we could not live, to die the death that we should have died while taking the wrath that we deserved. 1 Corinthians 15, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. In David Platt's words, this gospel is good. We proclaim, we now proclaim with joy that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. God sees now as righteous in 2 Corinthians 5. What does it say? It says he made the one who did not know sin to be sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Friends, let this gospel sit in your heart and your minds so that we'll be changed, so that we'll be living this gospel-centered life. And once this gospel penetrates our hearts and minds, then and only then is when we will fully understand grace. We realize that it is Christ who is living this life in us and through us and not ourselves. Grace-based godliness can only be lived through Jesus Christ. You see, when Paul confronted Peter in Galatians, right, he went to this justification by faith alone. And he, was, and he, he reminded us that he is no longer living this life. And I'll close here in Galatians 2.20. He says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. This life I now live in the flesh. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Friends, let Christ live in our lives. And don't take with you just for today. Take it tomorrow as some of us are be taking care of our babies or going to work. Let's let this gospel live our life. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this short time you've given us. We thank you for your word. We thank you for your gospel. We thank you for your holiness. Father, you are sovereign. We thank you for your son, Jesus Christ, who would die for us, Lord. Let us not forget what the gospel is. Take away anything that we're adding to it, Lord. We just pray that you will change us, that you will move us, and that we'll become a church family that submits to our elders and our pastors. They have a tough task. We pray, Lord, for anyone maybe who is going towards that road of eternal damnation. We pray that you will bring them back. We pray for their redemption. We give you this day. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen.